From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More people being hospitalized in the state with COVID-19, but how does it compare to past spikes? Then, might the time have finally come for a front-range train? How is it that passenger rail doesn't already serve this community? We spent too many decades at Amtrak, unfortunately, just keeping the system together, not investing in the places that America was growing. Later, unlocking the mysteries of muons. We are all familiar in some way with muons because they're zipping through us all the time. Muons are the particles that make up the cosmic rays that hit in Denver almost 20 times per second every square foot on the ground. And remembering the longtime coach of the Colorado Peaches, a senior women's softball team. If you try to buy a gun in Colorado, will you have to go through a background check? How many gun shops are there in the state? And what exactly does open carry mean in Colorado? These are just some questions from listeners in the last few weeks, and you'll find the answers at CPR.org. The history of Colorado's gun laws, what's being proposed, 10 questions you asked about firearms and gun laws in Colorado, answered at CPR.org slash gun questions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The state of Colorado has paused the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine over concerns about blood clots. Federal officials describe these clots as extremely rare, but recommended this pause pending further investigation. Governor Jared Polis has said the risks of any vaccine pale in comparison to the risk of COVID-19 itself. There are none that even approach two or three orders of magnitude of the risk of the virus. And once again, Polis Tuesday urged Coloradans to get immunized. If you had a Johnson & Johnson appointment, check with your provider. We're trying to substitute in Moderna and Pfizer. If you really want the one and done, you can reschedule hopefully just a few days or a week later. COVID-19 is the story that keeps on changing. So to keep us current... Dr. Ken Lin Q is on the line. He's a pulmonary and critical care physician at National Jewish in Denver. And doctor, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start with J&J. We're talking six cases of these blood clots after nearly seven million doses. Do you fear this pause will be taken out of context? I worry very much that it may, Ryan. And uh, tell me about what you think the effects of that might be. Yeah, so we've already seen throughout the country and also here in Colorado, um, a lot of vaccine hesitancy. You know, people fear the unknown. And when we have these vaccines, whenever there's a little hiccup in it, it's very hard to separate the truth from what rapidly propagates on social media. And because of that, people you know, don't know what to believe and they become very hesitant to get the vaccine. So when you have an extremely rare complication such as this, which it turns out may be just we're looking so hard for side effects of vaccine that we're identifying rare things that happen that are true, true and unrelated, the, you know, people become scared and they say, I'm not going to do this. The Washington Post reports this morning that the pause on the J&J vaccine 
may disproportionately affect students, shift workers, rural residents, and other hard-to-reach groups. Uh, it was very often that the, the one-and-done vaccine was being used to reach out to these populations. Um, you know, the, the percentage of people testing positive for the virus has been creeping up lately, doctor. Uh, nowhere near where it was this past winter. But health officials are worried. Hospitalizations are also rising. What's your sense of why this is occurring even as vaccinations get into arms? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it has to do with who's getting infected and how quickly we are trying to return to normal. So tackling the second part first, people want to get back to normal or people need contact or social animals. And, you know, people want to get back to, you know, hugging people, going to restaurants, interacting. And I think as our most vulnerable populations have been become vaccinated or, you know, the elderly the um, people who have pre-existing conditions, what we've seen is a shiftedness to younger people getting disease. Now, they might not get as sick from it, and they might not die at a higher rate, but they still do get sick from it, and they still can die from it. And so what I think we're seeing is the combination of, oh, we're starting to vaccinate, so we're opening up, plus who are the people that are most likely to do the most socialization, the young people, and then it all comes together that we're not quite there yet on the vaccination front to truly let everybody open up, but the people are opening up. Yeah, I have felt that in myself. Um, I got the two regimen vaccine. And even after the first, uh, you know, I had to kind of uh, struggle against the desire to rejoin society faster than I probably should. Uh, so there's a bit of perhaps hubris with youth, invincibility. And, and then, of course, we should talk about the variants, the most prevalent now B117, uh, which is more contagious and can cause more serious illness. Uh, that is at play here as well. Uh, doctor, one of our listeners asks what it means to say that a strain is more contagious. Uh, quoting the question here, does it make you sneeze and cough more so you spread more airborne particles? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a little bit of all of that. So what we believe happens is that this this B117 variant and some of the other variants, um, the B117 is the British variant, if anybody knows it as that. And it binds to the cells in the lung more efficiently to this ACE receptor that the virus uses to bind into us. So the way I like to think about it in simpler terms is it's like Spider-Man's web and you need to stick enough web on something to get it to stop moving. In this case, you need to stick enough virus onto the lung to get somebody infected and it sticks better. Um, so because it sticks better, it's more likely to make you infected. And because it sticks better, it's also more likely to be successful in replicating, which means that it creates more virus. So there's some evidence that not only does it stick better, but that because it's more efficient, it actually creates more virus spilling out that you can breathe out. So it's a combination of those two things that make it more contagious. Ah, oh, that was really helpful to understand. So once it arrives in your body, it's really good at infecting you. Now, the vaccines protect people from severe illness, hospitalization, and death, but they don't guarantee that you won't catch COVID. So we spoke with Matthew Pinto, who's 25. 
he hadn't gotten COVID and was fully vaccinated, then visited the mountains with his girlfriend. I was like, all right, like, I am good. This is great. Uh, He says they continued to wear masks in public, except when they were eating in a restaurant. And sure enough, when they got back to Denver, they started to feel sick and tested positive. We felt kind of every possible symptom under like a COVID checklist. We were exhausted. We had these terrible aches, cough. I mean, you name it. It was really everything. Pinto says they weren't scared of severe illness or hospitalization, I'll add. Uh, But Dr. Lin Kyu, context feels important here as well. Just share a few thoughts on the idea of catching COVID after you've been presumably fully immunized. Yeah, no, that's it's a great question. And it's a great example of where I think we're heading. So if you look at just pure numbers, the vaccines themselves are not 100% effective. So even if you're vaccinated, a small number of people, I shouldn't say a small number, a small percentage of people are going to get COVID. Okay. When you figure out that we have 350 plus million people in the United States, if that number is 5%, that's still a lot of people um, who are going to get COVID. Um, When you look at other coronaviruses, they cause common colds and they repeatedly cause colds throughout our lives. And I have a suspicion, and this is a hypothesis, that what eventually is going to happen with coronaviruses, it's going to become another one of the other coronaviruses going to give us colds. We just have to get through this pandemic phase where it affects people because we've never seen it before. And we would expect that people would get colds from it. And the symptoms that um, the listener described to us are cold symptoms, right? Fever, aches, chills, right? We see this every year with the flu. People get the flu in spite of the flu shot, but the shot protects you from death. Mm -hmm. And I suspect we're going to see the same thing from, you know, with with COVID-19 as it evolves over time. And I suppose as our immune systems, our immunity evolves as well. What's the latest on whether vaccinated people can spread the virus to those who haven't been immunized? Um. That's a good question. Um, It seems that if you get symptoms, you can shed virus and therefore spread it. Um, And therefore, this is why we have the continued precautions of even if you get your shot, you should wear a mask, social distance. Um, Because just because you, you might be protected from severe disease, somebody else who has not gotten the vaccine, whether it's because of the hesitancy we mentioned earlier, they have a health condition where the timing of giving them a vaccine right now doesn't match with the treatments they're getting. Um, they've had reactions to vac- other vaccines in the past, right? Not everybody's going to be vaccinated. And so even if you're vaccinated, sticking with the guidelines to make sure you don't spread is reasonable. And I think examples like our listener, you know, who got vaccinated and got a cold, right? The chances of that he can't shed virus are almost zero, right? If you're symptomatic from COVID, you have to be able to replicate virus. Therefore, Mm. you have to be able to spread it. And so this is why there is continued emphasis, uh, if not in the rules, at least in the public health messaging, around wearing a mask, uh, around social distancing, for instance. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Dr. Kenlin Q is pulmonary and critical care physician at National Jewish Health. He has treated COVID-19 patients from the beginning. There's been talk of front-range passenger rail 
Well, since I can remember, an alternative to the congestion of I-25. And now there's reason to believe such a train might actually happen. CPR's growth and transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner joins us. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Ryan. I mean, there really has been a constant hum around front-range passenger rail for years. And occasionally there's talk of something more futuristic like Hyperloop. Why might the picture be different this time? Well, we got a brief break of it uh, last year during the pan- the height of the pandemic, but traffic, right? Like it's it's bad. It's it's only going to get worse in coming years. And so there's, there's a bigger need for alternatives to, to Interstate 25. Uh, that's number one. Number two, like... There's a there's a it seems to be a uh, a real coalescing um, among really important players around around this thing. Um, local government, state governments are behind it, and also crucially, the federal government. Amtrak wants to get involved, and uh, it sounds like they've got some cash to to help push this along. So th- presumably, that's a function of the change in administrations. Uh, do we know where this train might go and stop? Well, uh, at this point, they're talking about uh, Pueblo to Cheyenne, Wyoming, um, stops in Colorado Springs, Denver, Fort Collins, um, some smaller cities in between. We do not know a specific route yet. There's a couple different options that they're studying. Um, in the long term, like a couple decades out, they're talking about going all the way south into New Mexico, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, perhaps, um, which would be um, quite a thing. Um, that means it would also, if that happens, would connect uh, with two cross-country Amtrak routes, uh, the California. California Zephyr goes through Denver. Um, that's Chicago to the Bay Area. And the Southwest Chief, um, that goes through Trinidad and southeastern Colorado um, out on its way to Los Angeles. So this could potentially connect all of these lines together. We're talking hundreds of miles of tracks. So right. a big project in the billions of dollars, according to early estimates. Uh, and I have to imagine, as a result of the scale of this, that federal support is critical. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Biden uh, administration uh, put out this proposal, uh, you know, giant, giant couple trillion dollars for infrastructure across the country. And in that proposal, there's $80 billion for Amtrak. Um, so that, that you know, sort of gives some uh, perspective here to just what the federal government right now is thinking when it comes to passenger rail. However, interestingly, Amtrak said this week that even if that does not get through Congress, even if they don't get that full $80 billion, they want to build in Colorado. They see this as a priority. Hmm. Um, so that's that's really interesting to hear. Um, and they look at uh, just how much the Front Range has grown over the last 10, 15 years. You know, we were talking about traffic earlier. And the state has also been actively studying this for a few years. And Amtrak's been a part of that. They're impressed with the work that Colorado has done. And they see this as the perfect place to, to start a new line. Um, here's Amtrak President Stephen Gardner. He spoke to this earlier this week. It's a huge opportunity. And you look at the map today and you look at these facts and you say, how is it that passenger rail doesn't already serve this community? And we spent too many decades uh, at Amtrak, unfortunately, just keeping the system together, not investing in the places that America was growing. What exactly would Amtrak be investing, doing here? Well, crucially, money. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, they, they're, they're a little coy right now as to how much. Um, but in, in the past six months or so, they've, they've mentioned a couple billion dollars um, that they, they could throw at this. Um, so that would uh, that's enough to sort of get starter service off the ground. Um, apart from that, 
operations, right? They 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 run a system nationwide. Um, they could uh, you know use those resources here um, to to operate the thing. And I suppose it's it's this hint at a commitment that is the game changer. Um, but the state legislature is involved in this too, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the state legislature, uh, the Polis administration, um, you know, all the it's controlled by Democrats right now, the, the entire state government. Um, and they are very supportive of this. There's even some Republican support, too. Um, and so they uh, put in this planning process. They put they kicked that started that a couple of years ago. Uh, and now there's a new bill at the legislature that would push this process even more forward. Um, it would create a, uh, a special taxing district up and down the front range, and that could help, you know, lead to a funding mechanism apart from the federal government that could, you know, support this thing, um, you know, in perpetuity. Well, that sounds awfully familiar to, to folks, perhaps. I mean, it kind of smacks of fast tracks, RTD's ballot measure some 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, fast tracks, uh, for those who have not heard me go on about this on CPR's <laughs> air, uh, that was a big capital expansion project that voters approved in 2004. Um, rail opened all over the metro area, including out to the airport. That's the most popular one. Um, but they did not finish all of it. There's the B line to Boulder and Longmont. That's not done yet. Um, the governor desperately wants that the RTD to get that done. Um, and that has led to some frustrations, especially in the northwest area, um, which, you know, if if people uh, remember that and don't have fond memories of how it went, that could make a vote for front range passenger rail more difficult. Right. Why would you vote uh, for something uh, that sounds pretty similar to a project that didn't work out maybe so well um, in the near uh, in the in the recent past? So the idea here is that there would have to be a vote by the people to create such a taxing district. Uh, this would not just be kind of handed down from the governor or the legislature. It sounds like a lot of things need to come together here. Yeah. You know, uh, there's there's different levels here. Um, the, they're all working together, but some things might not come together, if you know what I mean. So it, it really is going to depend on a lot of um, these things sort of clicking into place. Um Congress is going to take up that big infrastructure bill later this year. We'll be keeping an eye on that. This state bill, if it passes, we could see a public vote in a couple of years. Um, so, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's a choreography if it happens. CPR's growth and transportation reporter Nathaniel Minor. This summer, an electric car company, Rivian, will deliver its first trucks and SUVs. The automaker plans to build a network of chargers for its own luxury vehicles. CBR's Sam Brash has the story of a Colorado mayor who pushed back. Okay, so I think a good place to start this story is a traditional gas pump. You know how this works. You grab the nozzle, select your grade, stick it in your car. It fits every gas pump. For the most part, it's going to work on every car. Electric cars are a lot more like smartphones. You got Tesla chargers and then chargers for everybody else. It's just like Apple iPhone chargers and then chargers for everybody else. What this news from Rivian basically means is there's going to be a third type of fast charger, which has some people worried that the whole infrastructure for electric vehicles is going to get really confusing. People like the mayor of Salida, Colorado, who I'm going to go talk to now, but he is two and a half hours away, according to Google Maps. So we got to get moving. 
I meet Mayor P.T. Wood at a bar he owns on Salida's main drag. It's called Wood's High Mountain Distillery. And just inside the front door, there's an electric car charger he installed way back in 2013. And for a long time there, this thing, we had cars plugged into it every day. Um, it was the only EV charger in central Colorado that was uh, free in public. Wood says it was one of his best marketing ideas. People were literally buying like a case of uh, uh, spirits from us just to say thanks for the charging. The device is slow by today's standards, but it fit almost every electric car out there at the time. Anybody could get power and a cocktail at his place. Since he won the mayor's office in 2017, he's expanded on the strategy. The city installed another bank of chargers right downtown, and they're also free and open to the public. The economic return of people stopping in town, spending money here, has uh, paid for the the electricity multiple, multiple times. This fit with Wood's bigger goals as mayor, too. He moved to Salida more than three decades ago to guide whitewater trips, and he still looks the part. Think ball cap, cargo pants, bushy beard. Salida has since become a tourist hotspot, but Wood wants to keep it affordable for his fellow river rats and other locals. Folks uh, working in our restaurants and our retail outlets and river guiding and all those things that really drive our economy. The Chargers hit a sweet spot, free power for tourists and residents. But this is where Rivian, that electric car company, comes in and messes with his plans a little bit. See, last year, a representative approached Wood with an offer. The company wanted to build eight car chargers in Salida at no cost to taxpayers. Wood thought that sounded pretty cool, but then he heard the catch. Only Rivian's ultra-pricey vehicles could plug in. That part, he didn't love. If you can only charge at specific places, it divides that kind of world up in a really awkward way. Wood thinks there should be a universal standard for electric car chargers, just like gas pumps. A less confusing system could encourage widespread EV adoption, which scientists say has to happen to slow climate change, and it could bring more drivers to Salida. But some experts don't agree. Chris Nelder is with the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy think tank. Where I focus on chargers and particularly the EV grid integration. And he says the U.S. doesn't need standardized chargers. It just needs a lot more chargers. The more that people see public, especially high-speed chargers out there that they can access, the more comfortable they're going to be with buying an EV. So if a company wants to build chargers just for its customers, so be it. This is private enterprise, baby. Mayor Wood, he eventually found common ground with Rivian, which declined a request for an interview. The city worked out a deal to make half of the chargers open to the public. And in a decade, there will be another negotiation to maybe open up the rest. I think that's fair because that gives them time to recoup their investment. And then at that end of that 10 years, I think we'll really have a much better feel for where this EV world is going. Wood said right now, Slida's a little off the beaten path, but getting in early with rapid electric car chargers will help maybe put it on the map. And so providing that ability to charge your EV allows folks to to come through here and to experience, you know, our little piece of paradise. But a paradise he hopes will be open to all drivers and all electric car models. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. The force will be with you always.
Mark Hamill, the actor who played Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, tweeted just last week, evidence is mounting that the Force has been with us always. It's a reference to a real-life scientific discovery, which kind of rewrites the laws of physics. Professor Fred Gray has spent a decade focused on this force. He chairs the physics and astronomy department at Regis University in Denver. And Fred, thank you for being with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to join you, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, We're talking about subatomic particles called muons. And so I have to know, is comparing muons to the force from Star Wars, is that a decent analogy, do you think? I think that it's a very decent analogy that what we probe with the muons is a little bit like the force. So, you know, if the force is an invisible entity that permeates all of space and occasionally sort of subtly interferes in material affairs, then I think perhaps, yeah, we are looking at the force. Okay, so So, you've, you've already described a few things there about muons. They are ubiquitous, and they occasionally make appearances such that they could be detected and might influence our physical realm. What exactly is a muon? So we are all familiar in some way with muons because they're zipping through us all the time. Muons are the particles that make up the cosmic rays that hit in Denver, yeah, almost 20 times per second every square foot on the ground. Um, So, you know, while we've been talking, we have been, yeah, experiencing hundreds or even thousands uh, of those cosmic ray muons going through us. So the muon really is that high energy particle that comes from the sky uh, um, because primary cosmic rays hit the top of the atmosphere and produce showers of secondary cosmic rays that uh, come down to ground level here. We have more of them here at high elevation in Colorado than you would find down at sea level. In fact, you could actually make a case uh, that the muon was discovered in Colorado because uh, yeah, many of the initial experiments that were done to try to understand what the cosmic rays were were done up on top of Pike's Peak. Okay, and so uh, altitudes uh, like our own are kind of more muon intense. Am I to think of this as a function of the sun? So uh, not really from the sun. Um, The muons come from interactions uh, with primary cosmic rays that typically came from much farther away than the sun. Uh, um, So perhaps uh, other places in our galaxy. In any event, the muon was understood to be a subatomic particle that was a little bit like the electron, Mm. um, but about 220 times heavier and unstable so that the average muon only lives about 2.2 millionths of a second. Well, indeed, that would make them very hard to detect. It's like a guest who's gone before he arrives. Exactly. So rather than using muons from the sky that are harder to control, instead, in our experiment, we use muons that are produced using a particle accelerator system at Fermilab. And where is, where, that, where is that lab? Fermilab is located near Batavia, Illinois, out in the western suburbs of Chicago. And so it is America's particle physics laboratory. At Fermilab, we use the accelerator to mimic the same process that produces the muons at the top of our atmosphere, but in a controlled way. Mm. 
So in a controlled way, we make muons come into our experiment and we um, send them into a magnet where they fly around and around and around, making laps with their spin vectors going a little bit faster than they're going around. Okay. And it's that motion of their spin that we're studying because you might say that it's the force that's making that spin vector rotate. So the question is like, we know these muons are spinning. What makes them spin? There's something fundamental about that spinning. And my understanding is that their behavior is not what you expected. Right. So muons always are spinning about their own axis, but that axis that they're spinning around keeps turning around as they go around in circles. And we measure how fast that uh, turns around. And the only reason that it turns around is because the muon is interacting with virtual fields that permeate everything. And occasionally, those fields manifest themselves by having particle and antiparticle pairs pop out of the vacuum, out of nowhere, just long enough to rotate the spin of the muon. So when we see the spin of the muon rotating around, what we're really seeing is the effect of all kinds of matter, both the kind of matter that we know about and the kinds that we have not yet discovered directly. Is this some sort of portal to dark matter, Fred? So we know that the universe includes five times more dark matter than ordinary matter. Ordinary matter only accounts for about 5% of the energy in the universe. And ordinary matter is like your shirt or my table. Absolutely. And also the the stars around us, uh, everything that we know of that's made out of atoms. But uh, yeah, astronomers tell us that there has to be more. And we're able to see its gravitational effects in the sky, pulling around stars within galaxies. But uh, we don't know what it is. So we may be seeing, perhaps, in the fact that what we measured was a different value than we would have predicted from a standard model calculation that includes all the kinds of matter we know about. We may be seeing in that difference the effect of something that perhaps could explain dark matter as well. When you, I mean, this is your whole life, right? And so, and I'm just being exposed to it in this interview, but it really does make my mind um, blow apart. (laughs) Um, I think we all wonder if there's something bigger than ourselves out there. And it seems to me such an easy conversation to start to have when you begin to measure what we thought of as invisible forces that become visible. Does that make sense? It does. Perhaps that's the reason that I got into studying this, that I really wanted to know, to fulfill that inner human curiosity, what it is that makes the universe tick. What are the basic rules of the universe? What are all the different kinds of matter and all of the different forces that bond that matter together? You know, I went into physics because I had a personal need to know that. And I think humans uh, have had that kind of curiosity. And uh, over all of the years since there's been history, 
humans have been uh, trying to understand what is the universe made of. It's, it's part of the human experience in the same way that making art is part of the human experience. And I want to be clear, we knew about muons, and we have known about them for some time, but this is really about understanding their behavior and indeed the forces behind their operation. Is there something that could be applicable about this uh, it was somewhat immediately? Is this just in the kind of theoretical realm? Help us understand where we are with our understanding of muons, Fred. So... Every time we've developed a better understanding of the nature of matter, we have always eventually found some technological application. Nuclear physics is certainly responsible for nuclear energy, for medical imaging technologies, for radiation therapy, for cancer and other diseases, um, for techniques for scanning cargo containers to look for hidden nuclear weapons. Uh, um, In fact, Muons are uh, the particle in the form of cosmic rays that are being used in some of those cargo scanning systems. Oh, okay. So there are technological applications for muons. And uh, it's hard sometimes to point from one experiment to the technology that comes directly from that experiment, but it's by building up the entire picture of what matter is and what forms of energy there are that we've always made progress. I just want to note that in this research, you have brought your students along. They have been a part of of these discoveries. What is that experience like for them at Regis? Right. So I'm glad that the National Science Foundation has provided support for 16 of the 18 Regis undergraduates who've been able to work on parts of this experiment. So they have had a chance to, to work in the lab here at Regis. Many of them have had a chance to go to Fermilab to do some hands-on work on the experiment. So they have been able to develop their skills to build electronics, to write software, to analyze data, also to work as part of a large particle physics collaboration. The other half of it is the experiment couldn't be done without the work of all of the students. Well, throughout this interview, Fred, I've just been thinking of how many muons have been like going through my person (laughs) as we've been talking. Thanks for helping open our eyes to this. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Professor Fred Gray chairs the Physics and Astronomy Department at Regis University in Denver. When we come back, a coach who never stopped coaching, even when she was in the hospital. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Hi, I'm Caitlin Kim from CPR News. Every day, I cover Congress and what your representatives and the federal government are doing for you and for Colorado. I'm thankful that you value insightful, independent reporting that provides you with news you can use. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's going on in your community and beyond. Now I'm asking you to support the journalism that matters to you because you make it possible when you donate. Please give today at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Carol is catching still. Cindy K is pitching. Fran, you're going to be at first. Maggie at second. Sandy R at third. Eileen at shortstop. The Colorado Peaches are remembering their longtime coach, Gail Clock. Clock died last month at age 73 after a long battle with cancer. 
Even in the face of illness, she maintained a winning spirit with her senior women's softball team, coaching from her hospital bed as her players took home a silver medal at the National Senior Games. The Peaches welcome athletes 50 to 90 plus. The goals, in my mind, the goals for the group are more that you compete with yourself to be as good as you can be. And when that comes together with all the individuals, the team is stronger and has a chance of winning. I don't base winning on the score. I base winning on the effort, the improvement, and how we put that together when we're in competition. I spoke with Gail Clock in 2017, along with Maggie McCloskey, who plays second base for the Colorado Peaches. I asked Coach Clock if the adage is true, that you're never too old to play ball. It is true. and The players I've known for some time have actually gotten younger in terms of how they move, their endurance, and how they perform. I guess that's just the idea of keeping fluid. Yes, it is. It's, and it's surprised me. I, even though I coached all my life, I didn't anticipate that. Uh, Maggie, are you uh, in pain a lot when you play? How do you feel when you're on the field? Um, when I play, I'm not aware of any pain. Afterwards? <laughs> yes, I hurt. Um, I do have um, something, I don't even like to say it, but it's arthritis, and uh, but it never holds me back. And do you think it helps at all with the arthritis? It absolutely helps. You just keep moving. You keep moving. I understand, uh, Coach, that you also have a team of younger women that you coach. And I wonder if you might compare and contrast what it is to coach uh, younger players versus older players. Do you change your approach? Do you change your expectations or what? Very little, actually. Um, I see it very similarly, and I tell the younger players that, and they're astounded. And it also motivates them to work harder. That that is to say the younger players know of the Peaches. They do know of the Peaches, and a few of the Peaches have come and watched the high school kids play, and the high school kids are delighted by the fact that someone has an interest in them. You must have to be aware, though, of the potential for injury, which is different among these players. It is. You have to be aware of what can happen and how it might happen, but you don't anticipate that it will. How long do you think you'll play, Maggie? Um, I hope to play until I'm maybe in my 90s. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I don't know that I want to live forever, you know. I, you know, it's time to recycle this body and, um, <laughs> and move on. But I want to live playing. I want to explore this idea that you don't want to live forever because longevity is so um, kind of lionized in our society what, what makes you say there's a point where it's time, what did you say, it's time to recycle this body? Right, it's, it's time to move on. I do want to, I want to live fully until I'm ready to, to, to check out. Yeah. yeah. You were a nun at one point, and did you play sports in the convent? Yes, we were always, we played a lot of sports in the convent, yeah. Played volleyball and uh, some softball, not very much, but yeah, we were very active. And so you had an active life before this? I did. Is that key, Coach? Must you have led an active life before joining the Peaches to succeed? I don't think so, because there are some people that that wasn't the case. They hadn't done much before. They certainly had not done things in terms of organized sports. 
a lot of them didn't have an opportunity, being the ages they were for girls and women. Until Title IX got passed in 1972, there weren't opportunities within the schools to play. There were a few exceptions with areas of the country where people got to play that are on this team, but very little. And I think that's one of the reasons they're still so excited about playing. It hasn't been overdone when they were young. That concerns me with young players that are getting burned out before they leave high school. Mm. I understand that you teach the Peaches to run properly. I do, and they do it well. And it's incredible to see the change in their stride, their speed, their performance, their balance, things that help you in life otherwise as well. Why is good running form important in softball? It's important because you get to the base faster and you're more likely to be safe. <laughs> I expected some con- considered response about people's joints, but it's all about winning, I suppose. Talk to me about the relationship among the players, Maggie. Uh, do you find that you motivate each other to some extent? Yes. There are some players that come who haven't played in 30, 40 years, and to see them just come out there and to see the athlete in them just come it's like the athlete is there in everyone and uh, you know when the fun goes out of of uh, sports there's something out of balance when that happens that if you can have fun while you're playing or working out you know that makes all the difference in the world when we visited uh, your your practice, uh, I think what struck us is how receptive the players are to coaching and the gratitude they expressed when you gave them feedback. Is that unusual in athletes? I don't think it's unusual in athletes that haven't had opportunity. When I coached at the college level, they were not as receptive. They often felt they already knew everything and there wasn't anything new to learn in spite of the fact they could look at professional athletes who are practicing every day and still learning. Oh, a bit of a hubris there. Maggie, how do you respond to the coach's feedback, do you think? Um, You know, when you get to be our age, if you don't have something out there that pulls pulls you forward, that really challenges you, you lose interest in life. And women... uh, of our age, when we don't have something like that, we isolate. Hmm. And, um, and so this, this, this is, provides connection for you. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. It's enjoyable. Thank you. You heard there Gail Clock, coach of the Colorado Peaches softball team, speaking with me in 2017. Clock died last month at age 73 from cancer. In 2020, she was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award from Sportswomen of Colorado. Maggie McCloskey, whom you also heard in that interview, is 89 and still plays second base. So Gail Clock left a message for her team. It reads in part, My time on the field has ended, a journey I have enjoyed with all of you. It has always been a delight and a big part of my life working with the Peaches. 
always remember, it's the spirit of the game that keeps us there and the underlying theme of play. No matter how old you are, you can and should always love playing. The innings are finished, the game is over, I've given my last piece of advice, and my time here is gone. Love to each and every one of you. Signed, Coach. Denver's Molly Brownhouse Museum is marking its 50th anniversary with a new exhibit. The show unearths the building's past and sheds new light on the woman who called it home. CPR arts reporter Monica Castillo has this story. The musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown holds an interesting spot in Colorado history, as Molly Brown House tour guide Pam Mahonchek tells visitors. Not all of the listeners will remember the original movie musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which debuted here in Denver in 1964 at the Aladdin Theater on East Colfax. I remember it. It was my very first movie that I saw in a real movie theater, not a drive-in. And then, someday, with all my might and all my may. The uh, story that it tells is not factually accurate in any way, but boy, was it popular. And I never say a bad word about that musical, because it helped get this house saved six years later. The musical was based on the limited information the public knew about Margaret Brown at the time. Some of the myths said that she was uneducated, that she once accidentally burned her money in a stove, and she was rejected by Denver society. But there are larger-than-life details that are true. She really did survive the sinking of the Titanic. And the museum actively works to highlight the facts over fiction. Without the movie, Denver may have lost the house that Margaret Brown once called home. Mahonchek was giving tours of the house when she was a teenager. I was one of the very first tour guides. There wasn't much to tour. We brought him in and we showed him around as best we could around the restoration work that was going on. At one point, we even gave people plastic bags to put over their clothes because of the plaster dust. The house had had many different lives after Margaret Brown died. Over the years, it was a boarding house for men, and later, a Jane Addams house for wayward girls. Eventually, the house was in danger of becoming a parking lot, according to museum director Andrea Malcolm. Of course, urban renewal is sweeping through Denver at the time, and huge swaths of downtown are being, you know, bulldozed over for parking lots. After sinking tens of thousands of dollars into restoration, the house's owner, Art Leisenring, realized he needed more help to save the house than he could afford. So, in 1970, he asked fellow Denverites for help. The group of concerned citizens Leisingring brought together became the founding members of Historic Denver, a nonprofit that saves pieces of the city's past that are in danger of disappearing. Mahonchek's mother was a part of that group. Ever since the unsinkable Molly Brown premiered in Denver, more and more locals wanted to see the house where the Titanic survivor once lived. The house received support from the public and many prominent Coloradans, like Andy Love, the wife of then-Governor John Love. It would take years of restoration to get the house back to its 1910 grandeur when Brown had the house photographed in her heyday. Colorado, my home, and here till the judgment I will stay. 
The group's efforts to save the house may have started in the 1970s, but restoration on the 132-year-old house continues today. In recent years, the porch in front of the house needed to be entirely refurbished, as Denver's weather and over 100 years' worth of visitors took their toll. According to Malcolm, the museum has spent over a million dollars over the past few years to clean, restore, and maintain the house's stately appearance. Malcolm says scholars continue to find new information about the real Molly Brown, Margaret. Her many contributions include helping raise money to build St. Joseph's Hospital and other Denver institutions. She was an amazing philanthropist. She was a social justice advocate, a diehard suffragist, and even made a bid for U.S. Senate to be a voice and a champion for those that don't have a voice. And 50 years after her mother got involved to save the house, tour guide Mahonchek is still sharing the legacies of Margaret Brown and her mother's work with visitors. My mother died of breast cancer when I was only 18 years old. I have nothing left physically of hers except an entire beautiful home. This house is not only where Margaret lives, but where my mama lives. If you ask me to The 50th anniversary exhibit at the Molly Brown House is on display now through September 19th. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. Just to look at you. Before we go, we're working on a story about pandemic projects you didn't finish, whether it was organizing your home, learning a new language, or teaching yourself to play piano. I bought a stationary bike with the intention of using it daily. I use it weekly at best. So tell us what your hope was and what went wrong. Our email is coloradomatters at cpr.org. coloradomatters at cpr.org. For now, thanks to our own team of overachievers. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 